Awesome. Hi, everybody. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York and wanted to make sure that I let people know that tomorrow is Janet's birthday. <laughs> All right, so I can wish her a happy birthday. I'll probably do that at the end of the meeting, but I did it now. So, um, and because uh, I didn't want to forget. Um, so tonight I'm going to talk about the doctor's opinion. And, um, you know, it's, uh, it's for myself, it was a pretty important part of the book. And it's a part of the book that oftentimes um, people begin, you know, they start studying together in the beginning of it. And why I think it's important is it, um, it kind of helps people identify, you know, it's one of the ways that people can identify if in fact they have this thing, you know, um, this thing that I, mean, I have, and, and it gives an indication of what the solution is gonna be. It starts spelling it out. Um, and so I think, you know, there's a part that I um, always try to drill down on um, when I think about the doctor's opinion is it tells me that I am different from other that's that this is where I really get a strong um, message that, you know, the, the phrase that they use in here is that we're a distinct entity, that we're different, that we're differentiated from other people. And I will, you know, when we get up to that particular paragraph, but I kind of want you to bear that in mind as as we go through it, because that is that's important to know that we're um, that I am not like other people. Um, and so in the very, the beginning, the, the XXV, the first paragraph, it says that the convincing testimony, you know, it starts spelling out what convincing testimony is. And it's a witnessing of people's return to health. You know, it's, it's that's what's convincing. So what is seen, what we get to actually witness with our eyes is the great convincer. And you know, for someone like me, I've had substantial weight loss. And so um, that's good news because I actually, I get to use that as an opportunity to show the miraculous power of God, right? And, um, but there are also people, you know, have had other types of miraculous transformations that might not be shown in their, in their physical size, but um, it's in their demeanor. It's the way that they behave. It's it's their words, the way they act in the world. That's also the great convincer. Um, and so sometimes I get asked, like, why do you why do you show your pictures so much? You know, is it like because or, or, or someone will say, oh, aren't you really proud of yourself? You must be really proud of yourself. That's why you show them. That's not really why I show them. It's not a matter of pride in me. It's because for me, I feel like if you've been the recipient of a of a miracle and you're lucky enough to have it so that it's a visible miracle, it's I believe it's my obligation to show, to say, this is what God did for me. And it's available for anybody. And that's that's often how I can best draw people in, right? I get people because most of us, my I came here because I wanted a physical transformation. And so that was like, you know, it's sort of like the, the the little foot fish on the hook, you know, if we think about ourselves as like, we're going to get caught, right? 
sort of like the worm, right? The physical. So um, that's my convincing testimony, just one of my convincing testimonies. Um, you know, the doctor's opinion, it starts with this, it's got this letter and the letter says um, to whom it may concern. And um, I have my own name written there in my book. I have like crossed out to whom it may concern and I've written Dear Melissa because I, I believe that this letter was intended for me, for me to read it from a personal perspective. And I often recommend people read it that way, that it's not just some, you know, theory, but it's something that I can apply directly to my life. Um, you know, it goes on to talk about, and this is one of the ways, you know, I said that I'm gonna sort of talk about being distinct. Um, it says that a, a competent businessman with good earning capacity was still hopeless. And I think, um, you know, you can be both competent and hopeless. And I think that's especially true with compulsive eaters. Many of us um, don't lose custody of our children as a result of this disease. We don't necessarily, some people do, like lose their jobs. I never lost my job. You know, I, I would, in some ways, I seemed like I was competent. You know, I paid my mortgage. My, my you know, things were, I never got my power shut off. You know, I, I never got a DWI as a result of. So it looks like I'm competent. And that could be a problem because it's a low level of, misery and pain that from my experience um it's like being like they say it's like a frog getting you know boiled first the water is just a little bit warm and it ever so slightly in increments just gets heated up and that's what you know by the end what i considered competent was not competent you know it was if you're spending for me if i was spending you know um many days driving around in my car, hiding in parking lots, binging when my family was home and avoiding events. That's not really competent. But what happened is it happened slowly over time, right? And you can be competent or appear competent and still be and still be hopeless. Um, you know, the next thing is that um, it says that um, we are rehabilitated. You know, this is... Um, I believe XXV that um, that we are rehabilitated by working with others. That's very different from other, you know, other types of problems. You know, if I had, you know, I have high blood pressure and my doctor, the requirement for my doctor to help me, he does not need to have high blood pressure at all. And, um, and I can also keep my blood pressure down without having to help other people with high blood pressure. Totally separate, right? Totally separate um, situation. Um, you know, and so it says here that, um, that we are to impress upon the new person that they in turn, right, will have to help others. And so um, that's one of the first conversations that we can have with somebody as well. It's been my experience that I tell people right from the get-go, this, um, there's no trick here. 
it's not, I'm not going to trick somebody in to telling them what their requirement, you know, if somebody like comes to you and asks you for help and um, you begin to work with them, you begin to talk with them right from the very beginning. I tell them that the, the, the deal is if they get well, they will help someone else in turn. And, and it's because this will not work otherwise. That is a requirement. We know that the only thing that ensures immunity, that's it, is intensive work with others. And so um, this is not a 12-step program. I mean, this is not an 11-step program. It's a 12-step program. So sponsoring and working with others is not reserved for the elite few. It is for everybody who wants to get well and stay well. Um, you know, next it says here that on XXV that that um, that I personally know scores of cases who are of the type with whom other methods have failed completely. So here's another way that I'm distinct. Um, this is a program for people who have exhausted every other method. You know, most of the time when people get here, um, they have made many attempts at lots and lots of methods. And it's always a good idea to kind of list your methods because um, to me, when I list all my methods, what it told me was it was never lack of desire. Sometimes people would say, you don't want it enough. That must be it. You got to put your mind to it. Those were the things that people told me. And this is not because I didn't want it enough, right? When I look at my methods and I see the crazy lengths I went to, it's indicative that I wanted this very badly, but nothing worked for someone like me. I couldn't, I could not do it. Um, oh, I think I just blew a fuse in my house. Are you able to hear me okay? Okay. Yeah, yeah you're good. Okay. <laughs> my space heater blew a fuse. <laughs> Um, so this, you know, if you've tried every other method, that's good news. That's a good thing. Um, you know, the letter, um, at the end here, it says on XXVI, the end of this letter, it ends with, you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. Well, this letter gave them credibility and my word is good, right? Even what I say about myself. And I think, you know, that's pretty significant testimony that what has happened for someone like me who struggled with the truth you know, who, who struggled to be honest about myself. Um, that I'm, I don't keep secrets about who I am and what I have, and especially not if it could be useful for other people, right? And I think they're talking here. I mean, these were like gutter drunks that they were inviting into a hospital and saying, you can rely on what they have to say, right? Because they've got a solution. Um, you know, it, on XXVI, further down, it says that um, the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. 
So my body is not normal. And if I don't, if I don't stress this, right, it means that I'm neglecting to share some crucial information with you. Um, and it's, you know, as, as a sponsor, I'm going to work with someone or a possible sponsor. I'm giving the newcomer, if I don't talk about the, the, the problem with my body, I'm giving them incomplete information. And, you know, it talks a lot here about an allergy. We hear that a lot, an allergy of the body and obsession of the mind, right? We hear allergy of the body, allergy of the body. And I'm not an allergy specialist. I, you know, um, I don't have the results of my blood work um, or nor do I have the results of anybody's blood work that I ever look to help. But I know that this explanation is the only one that makes sense because in my life, I have never been able to eat two cookies, ever. And there's, you know, I mean, and there's a whole host of other foods that I had that experience with, but I, you know, one of my methods, I was just thinking about this right now, was um, was sensible plants that would tell me how I could eat two cookies in a reasonable way, right? Whether it was points or whether it was these cards and, you know, like I've done all these kind of things that nutritionally made a lot of sense. I had a nutritionist who explained to me that you absolutely can have, you know, a port, like she would show me what the size cup was. I could not do it because something would happen inside my body. And I, I, I could not shut my mind off of locking in on getting more. And if I somehow used some willpower that I had, to not eat more in that moment <laughs> didn't last long. And I couldn't stop thinking about it, you know, and that happened to me from a very young age. So it's the only one that makes sense, right? And yet our solution is not just abstinence because that would be a diet. It says here, our solution is, you know, it's, uh, the bottom of the page, XXVI, we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane. So this solution is not just abstinence. It's spiritual. It's a spiritual program. There's not a spiritual part of the program. It is a spiritual program. It's a spiritual solution. And it is altruistic, which means that we have to start thinking about other people and doing things for the benefit of others. And the good news is, is that when the steps are done properly, sequentially, thoroughly, that altruism begins to happen for, for real. It's no longer, I'm doing this to stay abstinent. That's the beginning, right? I'll do this to stay abstinent. It becomes, I'm doing this because I want to, because it's important to me, because my heart is different. You know, and it, but it talks here a little bit as well. It says that we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery and befucked. And that, you know, someone's brain needs to be 
cleared out in order to understand what we're offering. And, um, you know, and so I, I don't think we have to necessarily go to a hospital. We don't necessarily have to go to a treatment center. Some people do. And if that's free, you know, if that's what you needed to do, or by all means. But for those of us who didn't, I believe that there is um, a hospitalization period. I'd like to coin that idea that it's a period of time when I consider myself in food rehab. And what that means is um, tight parameters with a lot of support and a lot of structure. You know, and and what I would spell that out is um, like no eating out, no taking on a brand new obligation. It's not the time to, you know, embark on a, a, a new area. It, I would think about myself as like, this is like chemotherapy, right? If I had cancer, this kind of idea of this hospitalization, we would minimize outside distractions and focus on the business of getting well. And I think it's also important, you know, when they talk here about this idea that, you know, we want somebody's brain to be cleared out, right? Before he's approached. And, you know, I think what, when I read that, I think it doesn't mean that you stick somebody in a hospital room and you go away and you say, you know, call me when your when your brain is cleared, and then I'll come back and talk to you. You know, or or I don't believe that it's get three days abstinent. Call me when you've got three days abstinent, and then we'll get down to business. But if you're in the middle of eating, put the food down, right? Because I can't start talking to you about spiritual, and and start taking any kind of action with a plate of food in front of you, right? But it also means as somebody who's gonna have this altruistic spirit myself, is it is not my place to look down on anybody or to tell somebody that I'm not available to help you because you're not willing to put the food down. Go get the food down for three days and call me. And I know there are some people who do it that way, but I don't believe that that's what hospitalization means because we don't leave patients alone. You know, at the, uh, patients are administered to, they're helped. And I think that's what they mean by a hospitalization period. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, it further goes on on XXVII that, um, that doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance and that, but the application presented difficulties beyond our conception. You know, it says here that we are not perhaps well-equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. And so, you know, I might understand that I need another moral code that's different from the one that I've been living with. And, you know, we do find out a lot about that moral code that, um, you know, our moral code becomes love and tolerance. That really is our code. Um, but the crazy thing is, right, is I can't apply all aspects of this code by just my intellect alone. You know, it's like, 
I knew what healthy eating was, right? I knew what it looked like. I just couldn't do it. And I knew what honesty was. There were some levels of honesty that I could start practicing right away. And I knew what unselfishness was. And yet I did struggle to live within the boundaries of my own morals. But when I surrendered and I submitted to God's will, it became a heck of a lot easier to live within the confines of my own morals. You know, I need a higher power to help me live in agreement with my morals, right? I need God's help. God helps me to live within the boundaries of right and wrong. You know, addicts know right from wrong. They know what they're supposed to do in life and what they're not supposed to do, but it's difficult to abide by right and wrong. And I think, you know, um, if food is your master, if a substance is your master, your master starts mastering the rules that you follow, right? And when food is not your master, when the real master is your master, you're much better able to apply these concepts, these ideas. Um, you know, it, it further goes on to say that um, the unselfishness of these men as we've come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in the alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power, which pulls and notice power as a capital K, right? That means God, which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. So characteristics you know if you want to say like how do i know if somebody is uh someone who might be able to help me well they're telling you some of the characteristics no profit right anybody here that's looking to be your sponsor can't be making money off of you should have a community spirit you know and i would say you can see that in i believe in their attendance in meetings their willingness to participate, to do service, to help, to be a part of a fellowship, a community. Um, why? Why would we be working so hard to help others? Well, it says here because we believe in ourselves. Okay, I do. But even more in the power that has saved our lives. So, you know, I know that I was pulled back from the gates of death. I was pulled back from the gates of death. Not I hoisted myself up from my bootstraps and walked myself away from the gates of death. But I believe in this program because I believe that God rescued me, that he pulled me back from the gates of death. Um, you know, and my own story was, I was told that I wasn't gonna make it out of my forties. That, you know, I had dangerously high blood pressure and I was living in morbid obesity. And I believe that I was rescued. I truly believe that. And so that's why I have this community spirit. That's why I long to do this work. Um, you know, it, it mentions hospitalization again, which tells me it must be pretty important, right? If they say it twice in this one little short area. Um, you know, it, on XXVIII, it says that um, this is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving 
is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. And that these allergic types can never use, never safely use alcohol in any form at all. Right? Um, and, you know, and so the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class. Um, you know, I know like normal people will say, oh my gosh, I had such a craving for ice cream or I had a craving for this. And their definition of craving is different from our craving because my craving is what happens once I start eating it. You know, my, my preoccupation with it, my mental obsession for it, that strange mental blank spot happens before I eat it. But once I eat it, what happens is I get a craving. And it's like, they call it like an allergic response. You know, what separates what makes me distinct and different is that with every bite I take, my desire for more in an unrecovered state, eating my alcoholic foods in ways that are alcoholic, with every bite I take, I want more. So getting full does not actually stop me from, from wanting to eat more. And that's different from normal people. That's what makes me different. Um, normal people, they overeat, right? Even normal people eat too much on Thanksgiving, right? They unbutton their pants and they say, oh my God, I'm so stuck. And they laugh. It's funny for them, right? but they're not going into the refrigerator all night long, right? In the middle of the night, Thursday night, Friday morning. Like you can tell, I think, you know, Thursday, you have no idea. Who, on Thursday of Thanksgiving, you have no idea who's a compulsive overeater, right? But Friday, you might start getting an idea, right? And so, um. Normal people don't desire food once they're actually stuffed. And I had the exact opposite experience. You know, for me, the desire for more increases. And, you know, as far as like alcoholic foods and alcoholic food behaviors, I think these are things that are, you know, I could speak about them in general terms because everybody has a different experience. Everybody has a different allergy, a different, you know, a different manifestation of what it looks like. And I think this is the work. It's the, it's wonderful work that a sponsor can do with a sponsee, can sit with a sponsee together and go through some of these things together. Um, you know, it, next it says here um, on XXVIII that frothy emotional appeal seldom suffices. That these the message which can interest and hold these alcoholic people must have depth in me. In nearly all cases, their ideals must be grounded in a power greater than themselves if they are to recreate their lives. There's such an important, there's so much information in that paragraph. One is that frothy emotional appeal doesn't work. So if you have somebody that you know and love, whether it's a sponsee, a former sponsee, a friend, a fellow, even yourself. Frothy emotional appeal, telling somebody, you're killing yourself, look what you're doing, you know, you're a beautiful girl, or, 
you know, and I've had countless experiences of people well-meaning, they loved me and they appealed for me from frothy emotions and it didn't work. I even appealed to myself. I would, I would give myself a good talking to, right? I would say like, I would try on some clothes and be like, look, look what you're doing to yourself. This used to fit you. You got to do something about it. Didn't work. None of those things worked. Um, you know, and so the only thing that works for somebody in this disease is when another compulsive overeater shares their experience, right? And their solution. And so it doesn't work when I, if somebody were to tell me, Melissa, you're killing yourself. But what does work is when someone sat me down and said, you know what, Melissa, I was killing myself. Very different. And I'm not today, right? And that it can't just be a, a human-based solution. It's that it has to be grounded in a power greater than ourselves. That's when something can happen. And what's interesting here is that it says, if they are to recreate their lives. So if you're coming here, and I think people overlook that. I overlook that myself. I didn't know I was coming here to recreate my life. I didn't know I needed a new life, but I'll tell you, I never got well when I tried to fit my recovery into the life I had, right? And it's a recreation of your life. You, That's what it means. That's the difference between, I think, compliance and surrender. Compliance is I'll do what you tell me to do because I want to be able to go on living my life, but I don't want to Eat, right? I don't want to do it with the food. So I'll do what you tell me. Surrender is I want to recreate my life. I'm willing to say, you know what? The way that I'm living, I'm getting it all. It's all wrong. And I'm willing to have a brand new life with a new set of experiences. And when people take that position, they get well, right? When I didn't try to fit recovery into my life, but I was willing to get a new life that was based around a relationship with God and these 12 steps. Um, you know, it, um, it talks here about why we uh, drink, why we eat, and it's because we get an effect, we get a hit. And it's on the bottom of XXVIII that um, that we drink essentially because we like the effect produced by food. I don't eat because I'm a foodie. It's not because I like the taste and the flavor of food. It's not, you know, necessarily for the texture or the presentation. Um, but I get a hit. I get a buzz off of food and I can actually, I can actually feel that hit even before I would begin to eat it. You know, I, I remember like when I would be planning the binge, I would actually almost start feeling like buzzed, like that excitement, that intoxicated feeling, you know, whether it was having it in the shopping cart, I, could, I would start feeling something happen inside me. You know, I remember when I was a kid driving, you know, riding home on the bus, 
just knowing that something good was waiting in the house and, and my parents weren't going to be home. Um, that would, that was like, it would get me all excited inside. And, you know, and there's a sensation that I get, this thing I get, this effect. And I, you know, I say that it, it, it's elusive. It escapes me. It eludes me. It doesn't last. It's, it's not long lasting. And that, um, and even though it's hurting me, I can't tell what's true and what's not true because it seems like it's normal to eat the way that I was eating. And when you're living that way, that's your normal, you know, it's normal, you know, is relative to what, what your circumstances are, right? Just because something is normal, it's not necessarily good, right? So just because it was normal for me to be like that, that wasn't necessarily good, you know? And when I didn't eat that way, what happened was I was restless. I was irritable and I was discontented. And what that means to me is I would feel internally itchy, like itchy on the inside. I just couldn't settle myself down. And what would happen, you know, really explains the next part is the addiction cycle. And I think that that addiction cycle is really more of a spiral. For me, it's a spiral. You know, I, um, I get uncomfortable and I succumb, which means I give in. And, you know, I, I, because the discomfort builds and builds and builds and it weakens, I weaken. And then the, what happens is, is that I can look around and I see other people who can eat those things with impunity. And I don't understand that I'm different from them. I haven't, right? At this point, I'm not willing to embrace the fact that I'm a distinct entity. So I look at them and they get to eat those things. And I think, okay, I'm really uncomfortable and they get to eat it. I should be able to eat it too. Um, and then what happens is I trigger that phenomenon of craving, which means once I eat it, all bets are off and I can't stop. And now I'm on a well, like I'm on this machine, right? It's like this machine and I'm on a spray. And, you know, my experiences, I can't predict when I'm going to emerge remorseful. But I'll tell you what, I have never eaten and said after the fact, ah, that hit the spot. I always emerged remorseful, no matter what. Whenever I was able to emerge from that spiral, I never felt good about what I had done. And I think, you know, what makes me different from other people is I've got a spot that can't be hit with food, right? Other people can, they go, oh my God, that was so good. That's not how it works for me, right? Um, you know, and so I can't, I say it's a spiral. You know, not just a cycle, because I would swear it off, right? You swear it off, you put it down, and then it builds and builds and builds and builds. You succumb, you pick it up, you're on a spree again, right? You emerge. Okay, for me, it was a spiral because my binges got longer. They took greater proportions of food to get me just to normal. Um. It took me to lengths, took me to places I couldn't believe. And the time I emerged from Morseville became fewer and farther in between. 
I couldn't, I couldn't get any time without, you know, without the eating. And so what happens is, you know, for me, it was like this tight spiral where my life was like a black dot in the middle of a spiral. And here's the best news, right? On the other hand, this is on XXIX. On the other hand, and strange as this may seem to those who do not understand, once a psychic change has occurred, the very same person who seemed doomed, who had so many problems he despaired of ever solving them, suddenly finds himself easily able to control his desire for alcohol. The only effort necessary being that required to follow a few simple rules. So I love this. What this tells me is that a psychic change, a spiritual awakening, right? Takes that spiral and either snips it open or unravels it. So I'm not living my life in a spiral anymore. I don't live my life that way anymore. And, you know, um, and I'm easily able to control my desire. And what I think is wonderful about that is I thought that meant, right? I had it wrong. I thought what it meant to be able to control your desire meant I was going to need more control. I was going to need to be stronger. That Overeaters Anonymous was going to, I said, you know, was going to give me a strong cage. That this tiger of my desire was going to be able to be caged by strategies and methods and schemes and tools and all sorts of things that you people were going to teach me. You were going to teach me how to have a good cage. And actually what this says is that my desire is easily able to be controlled. And the reason why is because the desire doesn't exist anymore. It's not a tiger, it's a kitten, right? And so um, it, what it means is that for someone like me, you know, right before the holidays, Jewish holidays began, my sister-in-law called me up and asked me if I would pick up the baked goods at the bakery. Um, and. I am safe to walk. I am safe and protected. First of all, I'm not in a hospitalization period. I'm I'm recovered and I'm and I feel spiritually fit. Um, and I'm easily, I don't desire any of that. It does not, it's no desire. And that could only have happened, you know, as a result of a relationship with God, a psychic change, and how that happens as we follow a few simple rules, right? The steps those rules. You know, um, it, it further goes on to say that um, uh, many types do not respond to the ordinary psychic psychological approach. So remember, this is a program for people um, whose, meth whose other methods have failed completely. And so, um, yeah, psychological approaches didn't work for me either. I have nothing against psychology. I have nothing against therapy psychiatrists, psychologists, I think they're wonderful. It didn't work for this problem. Psychological approaches don't work. And I think, you know, for myself, many of the psychological approaches I tried were to help me identify who screwed me up, right? What did they do to me? Who can I pin the blame on? 
so that I don't have to bear any burden or responsibility. I don't have to do anything about it. But I can, you know, live in this fantasy land that if they did it differently, I would be okay today. And by the way, maybe that's true. Maybe, you know, I don't believe my parents did anything knowingly wrong, but maybe you did grow up in a house where parents specifically were cruel and looked to hurt you, right? Um, this program does not require that your past be any different than it was, right? That would mean that we would have to get in a time machine and undo our past. So if you are, I'm, I'm, been, you know, I'm lucky, right? My parents, they loved me. And if they made mistakes, it was never intended. But maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I wasn't so lucky. And my parents did do things to me. And if that be the case, I, I truly, and I mean this sincerely, I have compassion for you. I'm sorry if you grew up in a difficult situation, but that does not mean that you can't get well. That's good news. That's good news because the solution has nothing to do with undoing your the past, nothing. Um, you know, that psychological approach. So this is a problem, um, you know, that uh, I think we have to, I wanna get to XXX, uh, yeah, XXX, that, um, that the phenomenon as we have suggested might be the manifestation of an allergy. It might be, um, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment with which we are familiar, permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And I would say, and a spiritual awakening so that we can remain entirely abstinent. You know, what I often, um, and I know we're getting near the end and I wanna make sure I have time for questions, but you know, when I get to the part that talks about being a distinct entity, that we're different from other people, I often um, suggest to people to take a piece of paper and fold it in half. And on one half of the page are people who can eat with impunity. There are people who can get well with other methods. There are people who won't need to be altruistic, who won't need to carry the message, who can follow a diet, who can, you know, get some self-control, who, right, who can use all these things. And then there's someone like me, right? And I require 12 steps in order to have a relationship with God. I am someone who requires daily work. I am someone who must carry the message. I'm someone who must remain entirely abstinent, who um, cannot, who I have to live by spiritual principles, you know, which is honesty, unselfishness, right? Um, and I am safe and protected when I live entirely on that side of the page, right? But my difficulty had been, and I've seen it with other people, is if I start thinking I can hang out on the other side of the page, right? I look around and I'm like, it's not fair. Why can't I do what those people are doing? And if that's where you are, good news, right? because you can live on this side of the page with a huge, wonderful fellowship. And we never need to be alone 
on this side of the page, right? There are endless people who are living this way of life, um, you know, who, and when I need a mental uplift, I think about all those people who once thought they could live on the other side of the page, myself included, but found out that we can't, we need to live on this side of the page. And we spend the rest of our lives helping people come on over to this side who need the help. And um, with that, I'll pass.